Luke chapter number 10, and we've been looking through chapter number 10, dividing up the verses in three sections, the 70 spokesmen, one Samaritan, and two sisters. And already we've considered Mary and Martha, these two sisters. Last week we looked at these 70 kingdom ministers. So today we're going to consider this parable of the certain Samaritan. So let's read together. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse number 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? He answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, with all thy strength and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus answering, said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this story in your word. Thank you for Jesus' interaction here with this lawyer and the record we have to read about it. Help us to live out the instructions of Christ here to this man. Lord, we often find ourselves lacking time or resources or the ability to know when or when not to do good works and to show benevolence, to be a neighbor to the world around us. So thank you for your word that guides us. May we live here, leave here today going and doing as Jesus has instructed. We pray this in his name. Amen. We begin this morning with a tempting question. In verse number 25, a lawyer poses a question of eternal life to Jesus. And I think that's a good question for all of us to consider. It's one that we must all ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus instructs him to trust what the word of God says in verse number 26. The man asks, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And in verse 26, Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? How readest thou? And I want to just point out to you here the wonderful approach Jesus takes in dealing with such matters. He doesn't say, oh, I can answer that. Often as Christians, we like to be that way because we figured it out and we want to share with someone else what we figured out. And often as Christians, we feel like, well, the, Lord, the world has questions and 
We must be the one to give them the answer. And to some extent, that's true. But though Jesus himself and his divinity was a source of all knowledge, he didn't often give the exact answers. He would often just ask a question to answer a question. And let this person go and search and find with on, the, on their own the answer to that question. Or maybe ask the question and let them answer the question to reveal the thought and intents of their heart. Have you ever given an answer and then thought after you got more information, well, if I'd have known that first, I wouldn't have answered the question this way? For sure. So I love how Jesus here answers with a question. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? How do you read what the Bible says you should do to have eternal life? And in verse 27, this law, your answers with, Love God with your all and love your neighbor as yourself. And then almost surprisingly, Jesus says to him, you've answered right in verse 28, this do and you shall live. Now, why is that surprising? Because that is not the gospel. It's unique to Jesus says to him, yeah, love God with your all and love your neighbor as yourself. You do that and you'll have eternal life. To a gospel believer, you could read that and say, well, hang on a minute. Did my preacher lie to me? But surely I'm trusting Jesus above the person who led me to Christ. Think what we must understand Jesus to be saying in verse number 28 is if you can do this, you will inherit eternal life. Can a human love Jesus, love God with all of their heart? Can a human in their sinful nature truly love their neighbor as their self? I don't think so. But at this point in the story, it seems pretty straightforward. Other than the fact that Luke has told us in verse 25 that the lawyer was not actually trying to have this discourse to learn. He was trying to tempt Jesus. We would read this as a basic gospel conversation. And don't miss that detail in verse 25. It says a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him saying this. This wasn't someone on the street who he he thought was sincerely trying to find their way to heaven, sincerely trying to atone for their sins. Jesus understood the game that was being played. A lawyer here meant an expert in the law of Moses. A little different than a lawyer in our day. The meaning's the same, an expert in the law. But this would mean in, in regards to the law of Moses, this guy would have been considered an expert. So he's not ignorantly coming to Jesus. He's not coming recognizing, boy, I'm... I'm in a mess here. I'm on my way to hell. I am entrenched in my sins. And I need someone to help me out who, who I can't help myself. And this man in, in response does a very human thing. Verse 29, Luke records for us, but willing to justify himself, says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Did you guys ever try to get like that when you were a kid? Try to combat your parents with some smart words you know dad says don't do this your mom says don't do this and you do it anyway and they say i told you not to do that and then you try to explain yourself on why you did it there you're trying to justify your actions this is the record we have of this man jesus has laid out the case for him if if, if you could love the lord to god your god with all your heart that's what jesus was going to live his life and do if you could love your neighbor as yourself that's what jesus was going to live his life and do live a sinless life, then you will inherit eternal life. But you can't. But Jesus says to him, thou hast answered right, this do and thou shalt live. So trying to justify himself, he then asked this question, who is my neighbor? 
It's a tempting question. And Luke is clear to point out to us that he is trying to justify himself. I think we should be sure in these verses that Jesus doesn't point out to the man, you won't be able to keep these two simple things. Jesus doesn't say, well, if you could do this, and if you could do this, but trust me, buddy, you won't be able to. He just says, if you can do these things, you've answered right. So who pointed out the man's condition? Who pointed out the man's inability? Well, it was the man. Given what was presented to him, he realizes his inadequacies and he tried to justify himself further before Christ. He makes the distinction. He knows that he hasn't done these things. He knows that he can't do these things. Church, I think we've missed the mark often in this regard with our evangelism and our relationships with others. We are often trying to convince sinners of their sinning. Do I need to convince you that you're a sinner this morning? I don't think we need convincing of that. Even someone who would say, I don't think I've ever sinned. You know you and you know a whole lot of other humans person who can cognitively think and reason understands that they are sinners. Just as you don't have to be convinced that you're hungry and you need to eat, you don't have to convince, be convinced that you're a sinner. This man knows, so he tries to self-justify. Now I want us to get to the rest of this story, what's commonly known as the story of the good Samaritan, but I've just called it the certain Samaritan here through Jesus' own instruction. When he was called good, Jesus himself says, don't call me good. There's only one good and he's God. So I don't know how we ever got that. Well, I do know how we got that title. Catholicism gave us that title with the idea of just try to be good like this Samaritan. That's not the point of this passage. But we can learn a lot before we ever get down to that. Primarily, we learn here that we cannot justify ourselves. In our sin-cursed humanity, we long to be able to wrap our heads around our own work or our own efforts and to have that stand up before God. Even as a blood-bought Christian, I will often at times be doing my good works thinking, boy, God's going to really be proud of me for this. I know you guys are not that shallow and, hum and more humble than me in that regard, but I do struggle in that regard sometimes. We try to, even if it's not that carnal, I want God to, I want Him to see how grateful I am that He's redeemed me. But we get clear instruction here. We, we cannot justify ourselves. I mean, if we could, why wouldn't the lawyer just simply accept Jesus' wording and say, all right, I'm going to go try to live out what you've told me. Starting today. I'm going to love God with my all. I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. Why did he have to take it further? I believe he knew internally what we also know internally. Though he said he loved God, though he said he loved his neighbor, this is an impossible standard to actually keep on our own. It is impossible for sinful man to love God with all his heart and his neighbor as himself. We love God with what we think is enough of our heart to get by while also loving many other competing things. 
the instruction in the gospel is you cannot love God and mammon. And we often try to make that just money. And typically the people who make mammon simply money are the people who don't have money. So it's easy for them to hold that standard because they say, well, I don't have any money to love, so I can't make it compete with God. Well, I promise you this, it's more than just money. In fact, we could go around the room this morning and define what is it in your life that competes with your love for God. And you might be surprised at some of the idols that we bring out. You cannot love God and mammon. You cannot love God and have any other competing loyalties. You cannot love God and have any other competing loves. To love God with your all is to love Him above all else and before all else. And when you can't love anything else, you still love God. Well, that's a, a standard we can't meet on our own. So as Christians, we're thankful that Jesus went to the cross still loving God, was crucified, bore that wrath, and took it upon Himself to redeem us from our sins. And so we stand justified in His righteousness and not our own because we've loved God. And then why do we love God then? Because through that we find that He first loved us. That's how the Gospel works. But then Jesus gives Him further instruction here. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, we've, we've even made that one crooked. What do we say? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Well, what is that loving them like? That's, that's loving them like you hope they will love you. That's not the instruction. The instruction is not, well, I'm going to do this for them and someday maybe they can do it back for me. That's not real generosity. The instruction is love people who could never reciprocate and love them in a way that they could never reciprocate. In fact, love on people as you like to love on yourself. You like to look at yourself. You like to dress yourself up. You like to buy yourself things. Amen? I'm going to tell you that's wrong. This, this passage never says any of that's wrong. There's other passages maybe we could use, but these are just truths. You like to feed yourself? Do you like to feed yourself dessert too? Amen. Jesus' instruction here is that. Love your neighbor like that. Not feed yourself a steak and give your neighbor a hot dog. Not feed yourself a, a blizzard and tell them, well, until you can earn some more money, you don't get to have dessert. I get to have this because I've earned it. No, he says, love your neighbor like you love yourself. Not do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. So we, at best, love ourselves primarily and we love our neighbors with the leftovers and we, at best, love God with what we think is enough to get by while having all these other competing loves. So this man, to self-justify, knowing he'd failed Jesus' standard, that he could never meet Jesus' standard, he asks here the tempting question. Who is my neighbor? Is that question familiar to you? In verse 29? It brings us all the way back to the book of Genesis. All the way back to the first murder. As Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? 
Now, let's, let's be pious for a moment. Show what great Christians we are. Are we our brother's keeper? Yes. Who is my neighbor? Everybody. If you want to just go to the extremes here this morning, just, just live, live right there and I can leave you there and you can be you know, in your smiling bliss. But I'm going to give you some more information because Jesus gives more information. Many of us are doing the same here. Christ has died for you. He's offered you forgiveness of sin. Your part in this is simply to receive His gift. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 5.8 says, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10.9 says, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is the Gospel. This is the gift that God has given to us, the humans. Are you receiving that this morning? Are you like this lawyer and just asking one more tempting question? Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, I hear you, but, but who is my neighbor? What's he trying to do there? He's trying to put a limit on what he must do. If we could do anything to earn it, there would for sure be no limit. But we can't. Jesus had to earn it for us. And because he has, you must be born again and you can be born again. Well, given all of that, let's move on to verse 30 then. And after this tempting question, we see Jesus give a parable answer. And the story here is about a Samaritan who helped a man that thieves had robbed. They beat him and they took his things and they left him for dead. In verse 31, a priest passes by and doesn't help him. In verse 32, a Levite comes by, sees him, and does it help him? And then in verse 33, 34, 35, the Samaritan stops and goes over, above, and beyond in helping him. Some of the things that kind of come to our minds as we look at this, not only did he help the guy, but he put him on his own beast. So the Samaritan was riding, now he's walking. Then not only does he take him to a place where they can kind of look after him, he pays the bill, and he even leaves some money to say, if he has other expenses, well, then I'll pay that bill too. And he says, when I come back by, if there's any more expense, I'll pay that as well. Well, this guy really, really goes over and above in his generosity toward this, this poor, beaten, and robbed man. Now, I want you to notice Jesus' meaning in the story to answer this question. The question is, and who is my neighbor? Well, this man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. It wasn't a very long trip. Just a, just a few miles. The difficulty of the trip was not the distance. The difficulty was the steepness of the journey. Jerusalem was up. It was a city set on a hill. Thieves would take advantage of the twists and the turns and the changes in elevation. And they would use this as a place to, to rob. This was a, a pretty normal thing. Well, this man who we're not told who he was. We don't get 
Is he Jewish? Is he Samaritan? We're not told any of that. But we are told about the other people. There was a Jewish priest and a Jewish Levite who did not regard him as neighbor. Notice in verse 31, And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So that's, can I put that in our world? <laughs> this nice Christian man went to downtown Nashville and saw some scummy looking guy over here. So he got his family, went to the other block and walked down the other way. And I mean, I'm not piously telling you I do it differently. I'm just saying. In fact, we just got to where we don't even go anymore. We just stay home. In fact, I don't even like to get out in White Bluff much anymore. It's getting kind of wild around here. Not really. The Levite did the same. Verse 32, and likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But the Samaritan helped. This Jewish priest, this Jewish Levite, did not regard this man as a neighbor but then you find a Samaritan who regarded this man as a neighbor. So we must ask the question in, in, in Jesus' story here. Now this, this is a parable. A fictional story to make a point. A story relevant to the hearing ears so they'd be, understand the meaning, be able to easily understand the meaning of what Jesus is saying to them here. So Jesus could make the characters out to be whoever He wanted them to be to best illustrate His meaning. So why did this man, the Samaritan, stop and help? Well, the easy answer is, is because he saw the need and because he could help. Now that's where I want you to live. When you see a need that you can address, we'll, we'll address the need. But boy, can you see how convicting Jesus' story must be to this Jewish lawyer. This Jewish man who's an expert in the law. He first brings him by a priest. And if you're this Jewish man, you must be thinking to yourself, oh, a priest, these are good guys. They lead our worship. But Jesus says he looked down on, on the other side. He walked on the other side. And if you're this lawyer, maybe you're, you're trying to think through the details. Picking apart Jesus' story. Well, he probably didn't see him. And Jesus said clearly, no, he saw him. Then comes the Levite. The Levites were the helpers of the priests. Oh, these are... These guys are even better to the priest. They, they not only serve us, but they serve the priest. They operate as servants in humility all the time. This guy's going to help. And Jesus says, no, he saw him too. And he passed by on the other side. And then Jesus said, but a Samaritan came by. And you know this lawyer probably at that point said, okay, either he's just fooling me here or the way this story's going to go is this Samaritan's not going to help either because the Jews didn't have a good relationship with the Samaritans. They thought very poorly of them. The Samaritans worshiped false gods. The Samaritans conducted false religion. Back to probably why I'm not going to preach to you this morning of be a good Samaritan. Don't think you can worship another god on another mountain in a different way and do some good works. And Jesus is condoning it here and saying, well, you're a good person. Mm, not the case at all. Often scholars will try to speculate at the nationality of the half-dead man. <laughs> was this guy Jewish or was he Samaritan? Well, if he's Jewish, then what do we got in this parable? Well, it's okay 
or it's not okay that uh, these guys passed him by. And that's Jesus' point. And it's odd that the Samaritan would help him, but that's really how we should be. So you can kind of get, a, get something there. If he's Samaritan though, then, then that messes up the whole thing. Well, of course these Jewish priests and Levi wouldn't help him. And of course the Samaritan helps him out. He's one of his. But do you find in here anywhere that Jesus says, the guy who fell among thieves and was robbed was this, this, or this? He doesn't do it. He leaves it out. So we are left to not able to conclude the meaning from who the neighbor was. We're left to have to find the meaning of Jesus' parable from who was a neighbor to this man. And that fixes the question. Well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Well, let me tell you a little story. Was the priest a neighbor to him? Well, no, not really. Was the Levite a neighbor to him? Not at all. Was the Samaritan? Oh, don't make me say it out loud. It's like you guys do me in, in the fall when the Georgia Bulldogs lose a game. We can win a lot of games and you never say a word to me. But the Sunday morning that I come in, Georgia's lost a game the night before. Y'all are grinning. And you look at me and say, well, what's the matter with you today? Meanness. I need to get right from that, by the way. <laughs> let, let me worship my idols in private. Just kidding. From the point of view of the lawyer that Jesus is speaking to here, this Samaritan is the least likely to stop and help. Surely the, the look down upon Samaritan is not going to be the hero of the story. Surely the good upstanding priest and Levite would help. Church, I hope this is very convicting to you and I. R.C. Sproul gives us some really good background information that I think we should have in mind here. He says, it was no accident that the one who ministered to the wounded Jew was a Samaritan. The Samaritans were a group with whom the Jews had no dealings, who were considered outside the purity of the faith in Israel. And in Jewish oral tradition, it is specifically stated that the neighbor of the Jew is the Jew and that non-Israelites are not considered neighbors. Jesus was up against a deeply entrenched tradition that distorted the meaning of the great commandment. Jesus cut across that human tradition and restored the original meaning of the great commandment that God gave through Moses. The neighborhood in which we are called to serve goes beyond the boundaries. It doesn't end. It encompasses the globe. All people are, all people are my neighbors. From that, in verse 36 and 37, Jesus offers a clarifying question. So he gives this parable, and then notice what he asks. Which of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor to him that fell among thieves? And he asks this to this lawyer who initially asks his own tempting question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you've given your answer. Now, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the story, and he makes a guy answer. Now, which of these three was a neighbor? The man didn't want to know that. The man wanted to know who is my neighbor, meaning who do I have to help to get to go to heaven? But Jesus doesn't point him in that direction at all. He, he moves the thinking to this, what we've already said. Who was the, the neighbor to the man who had a need? You see, when you and I begin to try and help, we end up naturally just having to draw a line somewhere. 
In the church, we have leadership teams. And these leadership teams can set up funds and they can decide with these funds, this is the ministry that we're going to do. And the unique thing about that is somewhere in there, someone has to make the decision. We're either going to always help, but then what happens? You run out of money. Or we're only going to help these people and these people are excluded. Well, then what do you have to do? Well, you have to hurt somebody's feelings. If I preach to you, go be a good Samaritan today and you left. Well, for the good first part of this week, you're going to be helping people all over and maybe even feeling pretty good about yourself. But eventually you're going to see the guy that you gave the $5 bill over at the liquor store getting himself a pint. And you're going to say, that joker. Urgh. And you're going to say, well, I'll never help him again. Wait a minute. Did you just, did you just draw a line? Or are you going to say, well, I only have this much money in my budget to be able to do benevolence. So I can't help everybody. Well, then who do you help? Are we going to be like the Jews who say the only friends of Jews are Jews? What is the instruction here? Who are we to be neighbors to? Is it everybody? Well, then when I start having to draw lines in the sand, I end up serving nobody. That becomes easier, doesn't it? Well, I would have helped that guy but this. And I would have helped her, but for this reason I'm not. And I would have helped them, but for this reason I'm not. Well, then who are you going to help? You see, the, the problem is in human nature, we need to figure out who our neighbor is so that we can know who on behalf of God we can royally, as ambassadors, go and serve. When God the Father, the King of the universe, has said to, him, said to us, no, 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 that's not how it works. I don't want you deciding who is your neighbor. I want you to have the mentality of, I'm going to be a neighbor and let, me, let him put people in our path to be neighborly too. Should have named this the Mr. Rogers shirt. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. <laughs> if we're not careful, there will never be enough time. There will never be enough resources, etc., so this teaching here is not help everybody and don't pass anybody by. The teaching is be a neighbor. That's verse 37. And he said, his answer, he said, he that showed mercy on him. That was the lawyer's answer. So Jesus said, go and do thou likewise. Go and be merciful. When I was in school, we had a professor share this story with us in regards to this passage, as I was reading through the passage this week and studying on it, one of my commentaries, the story came up again. So, you know, I don't know how original this is. And often when you find these illustrations that are used heavily, maybe it's not even true, but it still makes a good point. So I'd say that to say, I'm not telling you this as truth. I'm not telling you this as original, but I think it's a great illustration. So the story goes that two psychologists at Princeton University decided to conduct an experiment on good and bad neighbors. They wanted to study human behavior, the human mind. So they go to the seminary and they have the seminary professors present a group of the seminary students training to be ministry guys. And they said to some of them, throw out a last minute assignment and tell them, you got to come today. And said to others of them, throw out a last minute assignment and tell them, you don't have to come till next week. And they divided up the urgency of the time. They divided up the, um, the genuineness of this assignment, the, the, the length to which these guys are going to have to go to here. 
And then outside of the hall, where these guys had to come and produce the results from the assignment that they did, and some of them they said, now you've got to come this afternoon and present this to the, the professors. And some of them they said, you've got to come tomorrow. Some of them you've got to come next week, right? Well, right outside the hall there that they had to come to, they had one of these psychologists himself dress up kind of like a bum. And he set himself down there on the ground by the door, and you can just imagine, you know, he's begging for alms or whatever it is that they were doing here. Maybe he looked dirty. Maybe he looked beaten. The experiment was, who's going to stop and help this guy? Well, the way the story goes, they never got any conclusive evidence. Because if we thought, think it through this morning, we think, well, the, well, the guys who were in a hurry, they said, you've got to come today, you've got to do this today. They don't have time. Maybe the guys who had to come later would have taken the time because they had more time. But they said some stopped and helped and, and some did not. The grand point of me telling you this experiment to see who would stop and help him and telling you that some stopped and, and some did not stop is just to make the point to you that if you think when I've got more time, I'll do it. When I have more resources, I'll do it. Or I don't do this because I don't have it or whatever your reasons are. Until you have the mentality of I must be a good neighbor first and foremost. I must love the Lord my God with my all. There can be no competing loyalties. And with that, love my neighbor as myself. You're never going to operate as a neighbor. Riken notes here, if we want to avoid making the same mistake ourselves, the mistake of this lawyer, we need to be willing to stop and help the people God is giving us to help, even when it may be terribly inconvenient. Have you ever noticed how it's not usually convenient? It's typically an inconvenience. Jesus says to us here about the Samaritan, go and do thou likewise. Church, I, I would implore that same word on you this morning. But I'm also aware that there are many of us here this morning who aren't quite there yet. You're still stuck trying to self-justify. You've not rested in the fact that Christ's righteousness has justified you and you stand in Him complete. And you're still wondering about in your minds, who is my neighbor? What must I do? These types of questions. I just want to encourage you this morning to stop that and trust Jesus instead. You've tried your own way all this time and you still can't find peace. And you still can't find rest. Your sin still sticks to you. Why don't you give up your way and try God's way? Try Jesus instead. Let's stand and pray.